In this interview series we call The Circuit, TechPoint serves up the human stories behind the major tech headlines in Indiana. I'm your host, Jessica Stevenson, Vice President of Marketing at TechPoint. Today, we talk to Stephanie Cox, CEO of Lumivate, a no-code mobile app platform for marketers. In this episode, Stephanie shares her journey in becoming a tech leader, the challenges of leading a fully remote team, and talks about Lumivate's recent successes with a $6 million raise and hitting the 100th episode of the Real Marketers podcast. Circuit. So glad to have you with us today. And congratulations to you and Lumivate on the recent $6 million raise. That's wonderful news. Thank you so much. We're really excited about what it means for the future of growth for the business. Great. So first off, for those who may not be familiar with Lumivate, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and who your customers are? Yeah, so Lumivate is a platform that enables business users, so really think anyone that can use a computer, to be able to build apps without using any code. And so that means you don't need development resources. So oftentimes we usually work with marketers, um, people in HR or the sales organization that need to build really engaging digital experiences for their customers. And we work primarily with enterprise brands, so companies like Roche, um, Delta Faucet, and others you might be familiar with. Absolutely. So 2021 was a big year for you uh, at Lumivate. You were promoted to president and CEO. And while many tech CEOs start out as founders, Mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily your path. You started there as VP of sales and marketing. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to the C-suite? Yeah. So I was hired at Lumivate five years ago, um, almost exactly, to run marketing. And that was my experience. I had always been in marketing for about 15 years at the time. And I had a close relationship with sales. And one of the things that happened at Lumivate was we were selling mobile apps to these brands and I had a decade of native mobile app experience. And so it became really natural for me to get involved in a lot of the sales opportunities because I was the type of person who I'd been where our customers have been. Right. I've been that person. I say I felt the war wounds of launching a native mobile app and we do something a little bit different than that. And so as part of that experience, I started taking on more and more engagement in sales and then took over the sales team about two years into my journey there. And it was funny at the time, um, I had never thought I'd want to lead sales, right? Most marketers don't think about that as a path. And Mm -hmm. I remember our CEO at the time, Mark Hill, asking me after a previous head of sales had left, he said, what do you think about running sales? And I was like, what what do you mean? (laughs) Right? It wasn't something that I really thought you know, for me as like a career path. And I thought about that evening and I was like, no, I want to do this. Like I'm already doing this. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how that journey happened. And then I tend to have this ability and I think, um, some people might find it frustrating or annoying, but when I see a problem, I can't let it go. So I'm really polite. And if it's like not in my area of influence, I'll tell the person, but if they don't do something about it, I'm probably going to go ahead and start fixing it. 
And that's kind of what happened at Lumivate. I saw opportunities for us to improve our services. And so I was running sales and marketing. So I started becoming more involved in that. Mm -hmm. And then I took over the service organization and customer success. And then, you know, there are a lot of things tied to product um, as well. And so in a lot of ways, you know, I started getting my hands on lots of areas of the business before I became president and then CEO. Mm -hmm. But I think part of it too was I had never thought about becoming a CEO. Um, because like you mentioned, a lot of tech company are, CEOs are founders right? and that wasn't my journey at Lumivate. And it wasn't until about like seven years ago, I had coffee and breakfast with someone at the company I was working with at the time. And he said to me, he's like, you, like at the end of the conversation, you know, you'd make a great CEO someday. And I was like, ah, that's hilarious. Right. Cause that wasn't what I had thought of. Right. Um, and then from that moment on, it became something I did start thinking about. And I was really blessed um, with Mark Hill at the time. He put a ton of mentorship, him and Bill Godfrey both, into helping me grow and preparing me for this role. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we, there was a plan for how that would look and how I would take over the business. And mm -hmm. we saw that come to fruition last year, which was really exciting to have that opportunity to lead the company mm -hmm. and the faith that the board has in me, that our customers have in me to take us to the next level. Did you plan for a career in tech years ago? No, I didn't. Um, I, I think a lot of times my career has been a combination of two things, hard work and luck. And I think sometimes people underestimate the luck aspect. So when I graduated, it was 2003. And back in the day, not everyone even had a website, mm -hmm. right? Tech was still very early. There wasn't a ton of tech as we would call it today in Indiana. And so what happened is the first company I worked at was Walker Information, mm -hmm. still Indianapolis-based. And they did have a tech element to their company at the time back then. And so what was interesting is I kind of lucked into that opportunity. I also lucked into the opportunity that at that point, not every company had a website. Social media was not something that existed really at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to college before Facebook was a thing. Right. It was MySpace back then. Right? Yeah. And I remember. Your top eight, right? <laughs> so it was just very different. And I was the young person. So what ended up happening was, like, you're young. Go figure this out. And that's how I got started in digital and I think what just really started to happen with my first like two opportunities is I worked at companies where their primary focus wasn't tech, but I worked on something related to it. Mm -hmm. And then that just kind of continued on in my career. But I'd love to tell you that it was like this really well-intentioned idea that I had, but I totally didn't. Um, I kind of lucked into that opportunity. And Indianapolis has been such a great place for so many different companies that have that do tech mm -hmm. that provide me with so many opportunities. Yeah. Well, you say, I would love to tell you happened in a certain way, but I think it's more interesting that it didn't. And it makes it more attainable for so many other people too. It really does. I think part of the challenge that tech has today is sometimes there's a perception of like, you have to look a certain way, have a certain resume to get into tech. And that's really for me, like a fallacy because mm -hmm. anyone can get into tech and we need to be better about making sure there are opportunities for people of all different types of backgrounds to be part of the tech ecosystem. Absolutely. More on ramps for all. For exactly. sure. I've heard you mention that when you take on a new role, you have a certain formula in mind to vet whether it's the right opportunity. I think it's the 30-70 rule. It is. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So this happened probably about six or seven years into my career, what I found is I get bored really easy. Mm -hmm. um, in life, I like to be challenged at, in my career, especially. And so I started noticing that I felt better 
and was more productive and happy in my career if I could come in and do about 70% of the job and just kind of rock it, make quick wins. But there was about 30% that I had never done before because I like solving really hard, complex problems. Mm -hmm. And so that's really been how I've looked at all career opportunities. So there have been ones I've turned down, um, especially you know, years ago where they come and say, oh, you've done this before, you'd be so great. And I'm like, yeah, but I'll be bored in like three months, mm -hmm. right? That's not good for you, that's not good for me. I like hard things. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why I came to Lumivate. You know, I had done mobile, I had done tech, I had done you know, early stage companies, but I had never done it you know, I'd never done VC fundraising. Mm -hmm. I had never been a, such an early employee in a business, right? And, or helped it scale or had us been a part of an early company that started in the enterprise. Usually most tech companies start SMB mid-market and they work their way up. We did the opposite. Right. So uh, that's what I tend to do. And I encourage a lot of other people to think about it that way, especially if they're kind of like a type A personality and they find themselves getting bored mm -hmm. in their career. If you find opportunities where you haven't done things before, it gives you an opportunity. Well, one, it's scary, but I like that. Mm -hmm. But it also gives you an opportunity to learn and to be challenged. And that to me is what keeps the excitement going. Yeah. You mentioned VC fundraising, yeah. which is of, sure, of course top of mind right now. So any lessons learned since that's been in, you know, the recent 30% challenging part of your role and it's been new to you? Yeah, I think the thing about it is that I never would have guessed um, going into it is, yes, your business plays a huge role in, role in it, right? Mm -hmm. Your success that you've had, the customers that you've had, all the metrics, but when you're at a stage where we are and we're still so early in our overall journey as a company, a lot of what they're investing in is you. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that I didn't expect as much, right? Because I'm a data-driven type of person. I'm also, I'm not a big fan of like self-promotion, right? Some of that stuff makes me super uncomfortable. Sure. Um, but in reality, what they're doing is you've proven that your business is successful. You've proven that you can do certain things. And now they're trying to understand, do you have the capacity to take it to the next level? Mm -hmm. And that is really about me and my leadership. And I think that was probably the most surprising thing mm -hmm. that no one really prepares you for, mm -hmm. um, is that while they look at the team, they're also trying to figure out, should they bet on you? Yeah. And that is like a combination of like thrilling and scary at the same time. But to me, it was really fun to experience that. And it was also exciting to see, you know, everyone thinks about VC fundraising as, you know, who is going to give us money. Right. Um, but it's a lot like a job interview in a lot of ways because they're trying to figure out if they want to invest in you and you should be trying to figure out if you want them as an investor as well. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's part is missed. Because what you don't realize is this person, typically your lead investor is going to get a seat on your board and they're going to be with you throughout that journey of growth. So are they the right investor? Do they believe and have the same goals for your company that you have, mm -hmm. right? And are they going to be pushing you in the path that you want to and challenging the way that will help the business grow? Or are they going to be more focused on you know, goals for them? Right. And we were extremely blessed to find a lead investor and choose that lead investor that was, you know, very aligned with where we want to go as a company, how big we want to get as a company, what's next for us. Mm -hmm. Any other criteria that you had in mind from your perspective of who is going to be the right investor for you? 
Yeah. I, the other big one was I wanted someone who would like shoot straight. Mm-hmm. So personality wise, I'm pretty blunt. Um, I would always like a Midwest humble and really polite about it, mm-hmm. but I'm very direct mm-hmm. and I wanted, and I want a board that's very direct. Mm-hmm. I don't like people that sugarcoat stuff or that are, are going to like rah, rah all the time. Like that's important, but I also want people who are going to challenge me. Mm-hmm. And so that was another big, a big piece of it is, you know, not only who's your lead investor, but who, if you do have a lead investor that has multiple people that could be on the board, who would be the person sitting on the board and what type of personality are they going to bring to it? Mm-hmm. So we did spend a lot of time on that. And that involves, you know, understanding what the dynamic of the board's going to shift to shift to what role do they play? And is that experience that they have, is that what you need on the board that time? Right. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that Yeah, um, is, you know, what are the strengths of the current board? What experience would be helpful for us to go to the next stage? And how do we make sure that the lead investor does align with that as well? So Lumivate was an early adopter of a completely remote workforce. Can you talk about the challenges of leading a remote team and maintaining a sense of culture, even without a headquarters? Yeah. So, you know, we did what most companies did in March of 2020. We all went home and we were very blessed at the time because we were actually in the process of renegotiating our lease before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And the benefit to it, right, was we kind of put that on pause and we're able to actually, our lease ended in June and we made the decision. And I don't think at the time I would tell you it was a hundred percent intentional to be remote forever. It was very much, and it was, you know, my suggestion, what if we went remote, we didn't renew our lease and we kind of see how this all shakes out. Mm-hmm. So, Cause at the time, I think we all thought it'd be like two weeks, maybe six weeks. And, um, clearly it wasn't. So that was the initial intention. And we did, I think one of the things that was really important is once we made that decision, we actually picked a date in May that was going to be our transition to a remote workforce, um, at least temporarily. And the reason that was important is there's a difference between working from home in a crisis, which is what every, everyone happened in March, to working from home. And that is because we no longer have an office and we don't plan to. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big distinction. Um, and it was also the time where we made a bunch of decisions around like, how would we make sure the team is in, is outfitted for what they need for long-term. And then from there, you know, it went so well for us in 2020. I didn't feel like we needed to go back to an office. And as we started to hire, you know, there's talent all over this country. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, obviously a large portion of our team is based in Indiana, or what, you know, was when we first got started, you know, we're now 55% Indiana based, 45% throughout North America, mm-hmm. which is really exciting to me. Now, I think there's challenges, right? Sure. So for us, we have to rethink how we onboard people. And one like simple thing is, what do you do? Normally on your first day, you take your new team member and your team out to lunch. How mm-hmm. do you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you handle different time zones? Because now we have people on the East Coast and on the West Coast. What time should your company meeting be? Yeah. That's convenient for everyone. And so we spent a lot of time on figuring out like what onboarding should look like, not for remote work, but for remote work at Limovate. That would be indicative of our culture. The other thing that we did is... And it's like little things. So we got DoorDash. So everyone gets a DoorDash credit every month and gets a free DoorDash pass. 
And so things that you normally think about bringing in food for your team. So now we just give you a credit for you to use however you want. And there's been a lot of, surprisingly, that's been like one of the favorite benefits Mm -hmm. um, in the year, which has been kind of fun to see. The other thing that we've done is we have a really, I would say almost like an obsession with the use of Slack and not in the ways that I think probably most people use it, which is a lot of DMs. So we really believe in working in full transparency. So we have an obscene amount of channels. There's a channel for literally everything. And that's where everyone can be part of any channel they want to. There's very few, I would say, private channels. Um, But we work in transparency. So if you want to know what's going on with one of our customers, you just pop on their customer channel and you can see all conversations anyone on the company has had about them and what we're doing, which is, I think, allows you to have that like water cooler effect um, and get a sense of like the jet stream of what's happening in the business. The other thing that we've done, and we rolled this out at the beginning of 2022, was we call it like weekly impact. So normally a lot of companies our stage would do like a stand-up where everyone would like talk about what they're focused on. And let's be honest, like no one wants to be on a daily Zoom call where like the whole company goes around and does that. So what we do instead is we actually do make it, have everyone post on Mondays what they're focused on for the week. And what's really cool about that is two things. One, everyone in the company gets to see what everyone else is working on. And so you'll see conversations happen where they're like, oh, I didn't know you were doing this. I'm working on this. We should talk. Or, and the other thing is when you're not in the same physical location, sometimes it's hard to understand the progress you're making because you see like your progress or you see your team's progress, but you don't have a bigger sense for how the whole is moving forward. And so that's been really cool to see. I actually did that um, in our last weekly company meeting is I put up screenshots of everyone's weekly impact posts from the previous week. And I took a second to just recognize how much we're accomplishing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you're in the grind of building a business, it's hard to realize how much is being done. And so that's been, I think a really big, I was afraid when, to be honest, I was afraid when we first rolled it out because I didn't want people to think it was like a big brother thing, or we're trying to like understand what you're doing all day because I hire adults and I trust them to do their job. But what the hope was is for everyone to get this sense of like, holy crap, we have a lot going on and we're doing really amazing things. So that I think has been another really good piece. And then I think part of it is we have fun. So like a great example is there prior to, you know, the growth that we've had in the last like three or four months with the team, there was probably, there was like three of us that were big fans of Survivor And so like the three of us would chat about it, you know, on Thursdays after the Wednesday night episode. And now the team has grown. I jokingly mentioned that in a company meeting. And then now there's like eight people going what you watch it to. And so now there's like a survivor fantasy league and there's like live chatting about it on Slack at night as everyone's watching the episode. And it creates, I think that same type of relationship but you do have to be intentional about it, right? You can sit in your home or wherever you work, if you do have a work from anywhere kind of policy and work and not talk to anyone all day and not engage, right? That is still possible to do. But I think what we're trying to do is make sure there are lots of opportunities for you to not do that if you so choose to. Mm-hmm. So so thinking about all of that, is there anything you, w- you wish you would have done differently now having your two years to reflect back on being fully remote? I think I wish we would have made the decision to be fully remote permanently sooner. Mm. Um, Because I think there was this weird 
stage where we were probably going to have an office where we might have an office. And I know like we didn't know, and there were so many things in the world, like no one could predict, but I think the challenge for it was, is even though we had set that date, like where we transitioned to like being a remote company, there was still this, well, in the future, this could happen. And I think that is problematic for a couple of reasons. One, it creates uncertainty with the team around like, well, if I like working remotely, do I have to go back to an office? Is that something that they worry about? Um, It also is hard from a recruiting perspective, right? Because are you going to make people go back? Are you not? Are you limited to Indiana if you're going to have an office? Are you not? So we made that decision really in early 2021. I wish I would have made it, we would have made it sooner because I think it would have really just solidified like what we were trying to do from a culture perspective. And it would have made it easier for the team to know like, no, this is, this is how working at Lumivate works. Um, and I think it also would have helped, you know, if there's some people that don't want to work remote mm-hmm. um, and that's not for them, but they prefer an in-office setting. And I a hundred percent understand that. And that is great for them. And I hope that they can find opportunities like that for their career. And there's people that like hybrid, right? And, you know, we intentionally made that decision to be a hundred percent remote moving forward. And I think we're, you know, when we recruit people, we're super transparent about that. Um, now that we, that's a definite thing for us. And we find people that want that type of lifestyle, which I think makes it easier, but it was harder during that in-between stage where, you know, we could have hired people that maybe wanted to be remote, but also maybe wanted to be in the office and we're creating a company of like mixed feelings. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's so important to be so upfront on mm-hmm. even the job description with, uh, you know, transparent language so that people can self-select out if it's not exactly. going to be a fit. Great. Well, somewhat recently, you revealed Lumivate's core values. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about their creation and the big reveal to the team? Yeah. So we had, um, you know, before I even started at Lumivate, there were core values and we had talked, you know, over the you know, last four or five years about updating them or refining them, but they were never honestly super intentional with the company. There was never, you know, performance reviews. We never evaluated new hires based on core values or any of those things that I think most people would traditionally do at larger companies. And one of the things that I wanted to do, you know, really as taking over as CEO and with our $6 million raise and hiring new people on the executive team was to kind of like reset the company we were building. Not where we're headed as a company, but like who we are and what matters to us. Because I think one of the things that's important, and you see this with other companies, is when you do have a transition to, see, to the CEO and the CEO level, there is part of who that person is that impacts the business. And so I want to make sure the core values are reflective of the business I want to build. And so we spent a ton of time like obsessing over like every single word for, we have four of them for like two of them. Um, and some came a little bit easier than others. So the first one is around like move fast, deliver results, which I think is, you know, probably the most expected one, right? We, we do need to move fast. We do need to deliver results. And, you know, I think that was just what's expected of the team. It's also makes it clear to new hires, kind of like we, I tell everyone we have one speed, it's like running. And that is very appealing to a lot of people and some people it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, The next one was around being bold. 
And that was really about a couple of things. I think sometimes when you're in this stage, you obsess about competitors or you obsess about like, should we do this? Should we not do this? And I'm a big believer in crazy ideas and being bold and pushing boundaries because if you're doing what everyone else is doing, that's table stakes. You're not innovating. You're not moving forward. So part of that was around really challenging the team to be more bold in their thinking. Mm -hmm. Let's not do what we've always done. Let's do something different. Um, and then, you know, be amazing to work with. That's a pretty simple one, I think, but we have a little different spin on it. And, you know, we want all, everyone that works with us, customers, partners, vendors, et cetera, to love to work with our team. But more importantly, we want to hire people that are amazing to work with. So I think all of us in our career, no matter where you've worked, what industry you've worked with people who are not like the best people to work with. So we have a no a-hole rule, like in our core value, it's the first sentence. Um, and it was so funny. I remember when I wrote that and I sent that to the executive team, we started talking about it and they're like, do you want that on the website? I'm like, yeah, I do. Right. You're being bold. I mean, bold, right? Because in all honesty, like, I don't want to say jerks because I mean, that's not what we mean. And I don't want those people here because in all honesty, we all, we've every single person can tell a time where they've had, they've worked with someone like that. It's impacted the business. It's impacted their life. I don't want that. And I want a zero tolerance policy for it. Mm -hmm. So that was, I think, um, we did, we did, we did spend a lot of time on the wording of, of that kind of core value. Um, but the one we spent the most time on was the last one, which was probably the one that was the most important to me, which is around prioritizing your life. Mm -hmm. And we changed that probably like 40 times because we were trying to figure out like what the, what the phrasing should be because the gist of it was, and it was kind of like stemmed from a couple of situations that happened in 2021. One to me personally, but I think it just happens to everyone is when something happens in your life, there is an expectation that you react to it like everyone else would, right? So a great example is my daughter had two brain surgeries in November mm. and everyone was like, well, you need to take time off and you need to do this because we stayed in the hospital between the two surgeries. And you know what? For some people, that's exactly what they need to do. For me, she's sleeping all day and like the room is dark and I'm going to go crazy if I don't do something, right? Like I'm going to stress, I'm going to worry. Mm -hmm. So like me responding to email or like doing like work things is because like that is how I cope with that situation. Mm -hmm. And then when she came home and we were no longer under the, you know, under the care of doctors, yeah, I took time off and took care of her, mm -hmm. right? But I think that's the thing that was important is that every single person in our company is at a different point in their life. They have different priorities. They handle stress in different ways. They handle life events in different ways. And I don't want anyone to feel like there is one way to handle it or that they have to handle it like I would. And that was really where that core value came from was I want everyone to be able to prioritize their life, how it makes sense for them. Mm -hmm. If you need to go on vacation and never check your email and completely disconnect, awesome. I wish I could be you. Mm -hmm. I cannot because... I am more stressed out if I don't check email throughout the week because mm -hmm. then I think about all the things that come like that I have to do when I get back. Right. And that's not for everyone. Like some people are like, Oh, I could never do that. Oh, oh that's okay. Mm -hmm. I don't expect you to, mm -hmm. but I don't want anyone to put how, you know, their views on how I should live my life on me. And I don't want to do that to anyone else on the team. And so I think that was really the most important one is 
you get to decide how you prioritize your life, how you prioritize what matters to you, the relationships that matter to you. And just know that the whole team is going to support however you choose to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I, I noticed you haven't said work-life balance, but I like yeah. how you're talking about it. But at the same time, that can be an elusive idea in tech, especially. Yes. So how do you model it when it could manifest in so many different ways? And has that been a struggle in the organization? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I hate the phrase work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate the phrase work-life integration because if we're being really honest, it's so different for everyone. So for me, you know, there are times where work gives more and there are times where like life gives more and there are times where like the two are super well blended mm-hmm. in the weirdest of ways. So what I try and really model is number one, I tell this to the team, I, my work life Everything schedule is not what I expect from my team. So just because I'm a night owl, which is I'm not a morning person, right? Like I'm not the person that gets up at 5 a.m. and does all the things, but I am the person that's up at midnight (laughs) Um, because I'm emailing at midnight or I'm sending Slack messages and thank goodness for the ability to send them and schedule them in the future now. Um, That does not mean that I expect you to respond. If I'm editing a Google Doc at 12 o'clock at night, that's because that's when I do sometimes my best work. It doesn't mean I expect you to do anything with it. So, I, you know, I always tell people, you can work on the schedule that works for you. I can work on the schedule that works for me. And I don't care that they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing is I'm just really big on accountability. And so for me, if the team's doing what they need to do, I don't really worry too much about the rest of it. And I know that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable, especially when you're in a remote workforce and Mm. you can't see everyone, but I hire really talented people and I'm trusting that they can do their job and they don't need someone to oversee every aspect of it. And sometimes that means it's during like a normal, like workday hours. And sometimes that means they had to take care of their kid and now they're up late doing stuff. I'm okay with, with all of that. I think the thing that can be hard is around time off. Um, and I think that's the biggest challenge, especially the last two years that, you know, we've really tried to figure out how to not just model the right behavior, but also put in guardrails to help Mm -hmm. people with that. So, and I'm the worst example. Um, I didn't take time off in 2020. Um, like I had well intentions to, I couldn't go anywhere. Right. So I just didn't end up taking really much time off and neither did our head of engineering at the time. And, you know, in 2021, we both said like at the beginning of the year, we're going to, we're going to take time off this year. We're going to do this. And we were slightly better. You had accountability partnership. We we did have an accountability partnership (laughs) because, and then like what we realized, like partially for the year was what we never said this, but there was some people were great about taking time off. Like they would in a normal year. And there were other people who weren't. And, you know, the two of us actually had this conversation around, like, I, even though we're not saying it, if we're not doing it, other people who maybe are like us, who would be less inclined to do it just naturally, given like the world situations, are they not doing it too? And so part of, you know, 
really what we did at the beginning of this year is we rolled out, we have unlimited PTO. Okay. Um, we rolled out a minimum PTO policy. And it was funny because like, it kind of, it's hilarious. It's hilarious for a couple of reasons. One, like I've never thought I'd have to tell people like a minimum amount of time to take off. <laughs> um, so that was like interesting to figure, like to realize like I had to do that. Mm-hmm. But then two, it was really interesting, like the team's reaction about it. Because we told, we've always had unlimited PTO and we also close between um, Christmas and New Year's for like winter holiday. And I was told, you know, I said, okay, so we have unlimited PTO, but we're going to roll out a minimum PTO policy. And there are people who are like, why, why are you doing this? Like, I don't, we don't, I don't need that. And there are other people who are like, oh, <laughs> right. Because they like to work. Um, but we started, I would say conservatively um, with everyone has to take at least two weeks off. Um, and that does not include like company holidays or company time off. Mm-hmm. And I told everyone, you know, at our kickoff, I said, I hope all of you take more time than that. I said, but if you don't take off two weeks, like your boss is going to talk to you about it, right? Because we want you to have time to completely decompress from Lumivate. And then I said to everyone, I said, so in full accountability, all of you know, I was horrible at this last year. Um, so here's what I already have planned the time I'm already taking off. So please, all of you hold me accountable to it. Right. And I think that also helps being really transparent because for me, I struggle with it. Um, which means I know that other people struggle with it too. And I know there's a ton of people that like don't struggle with it all. And I wish I could be you. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think also being really transparent and vulnerable about this is hard for me too. Or like, sometimes I love what I do. I know everyone you know, is like, well, you need time to decompress. If you have a job that you love, like I get paid to do my hobby. It's pretty freaking cool. So I love doing it. And I don't think of it as work. And I I know there's other people on our team in a similar kind of space. And, you know, I'm I'm like, come along with me. We're going to do it this year. It's going to be fine. Um, So it's, we'll see how it goes. Um, But yeah, it's, I think a, a new journey for all of us as we just get better at not just like work, all the things related to work life, but also just being intentional about like, you know, time for self care and like decompressing from constantly running. Yeah. And so important coming out of the pandemic where there's so many, you know, just in general, mental health concerns in corporate, corporate life, that kind of thing. Uh, you've held a variety of marketing roles Mm -hmm. over the years, including at exact target the year it was acquired by Salesforce. Mm -hmm. You know, looking back, how do you think the needs of marketers have evolved over the years? Oh gosh, so many ways. And I think they evolve like almost every single day right now, which is kind of crazy. So, you know, back then, especially if you were a marketer in the B2B space, there was, there was a playbook. We used to talk about this, right? Like there's a playbook for B2B marketing. And there was also a playbook for B2C marketing. And everyone kind of did the same types of things. And it worked. I think the challenge now is the world has changed. And what I mean by that is, you know, before everyone used to talk about, well, we're marketing to a business. Or we're marketing to these personas at a business. Well, that was before Netflix, right? That was before Amazon was really huge. Now I can get everything in two days. Now I can watch shows on demand. I could try Netflix out and pay for it without ever talking to someone. That whole concept have sh- has shifted everything about marketing, right? So this idea of 
you know, Netflix shows me the shows that it recommends for me. And it's highly, it's like eerily personalized. I'm like, what things I will like, um, which is also kind of funny too, because I think there's probably a whole generation of people going like, I hope no one can ever see my Netflix recommendations. And what I watch at night, um, for all the like weird documentaries and like things. Um, but what's cool about it is it requires a level of creativity that I think didn't exist before, mm-hmm. especially like in the B2B world, right? Before you would do like events and you would have outbound calls and direct mail and webinars and like all those things still have a place today. But today everyone is doing all of those things. And so you have to do the things that they're not doing or do it in a way that's totally different. And you need to stop marketing to companies and start marketing to people. And so I'm always really challenging like our customers and our own team. Like, yes, we are B2B, but in reality, like we're marketing to people who have consumer expectations. And yes, you may not be like our ICP personally, but you are a person. Would you react to this? Because if you wouldn't react to this, why do you think someone else would as a consumer? And so I think that is a big thing. And I think the other thing is consumers just, their expectations have drastically changed in terms of personalization, right? Like I love when companies talk about personalization, they send me an email and they're like, Hey, Stephanie. And like, that's not personalization. (laughs) That's my name, right? Personalization is when every touch point in my customer journey with you is a hundred percent dynamic to what you know about me, because I know you have all this uber creepy data about me. And I think that's something that most companies aren't doing well today because they don't have the data or, you know, especially if they were more B2B to C and they're selling in a big box stores like Target, Lowe's, Home Depot, they don't even own their customer data, let alone have the ability to create those personal relationships. And that is, I think, where marketing is headed. And it's also going to unleash a crazy amount of creativity options that I'm excited to see, but I also feel like companies are the most unprepared for the old way of doing marketing doesn't work anymore. And I think that is most exciting thing for me, but also the most concerning for me as well, because there's so many brands that don't realize it yet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good segue into my next question. So while no code app development has many use cases, Lumovate's focus is to be the platform where marketers build apps. Can you elaborate on why no code is specifically appealing to marketers and why that might be the way of the future? Yeah. So, you know, I think part of it, if you look at marketers and how we build apps, websites, digital experiences, it really falls into three buckets. One, I go to my IT IT team and ask them to do it. And if we're being really honest, they don't want to do it. They don't want to build my website. They don't care about my hex code. They don't have time for it. They don't it have time for it, right? Like they're trying to keep like the critical systems of the business up and running. And so you get put on like what I call like right the IT wait list, which is like months of waiting until you get it. And then months of waiting to get updates. The second bucket is you some companies have this where they'll have like their own dev resources within marketing and they can move a little bit faster. And then the third bucket is you go out externally. Um, and I think that's where probably most of marketing happens is I go to an agency, I go to a third party dev shop. It still has time constraints, right? It still takes me time because they're typically writing custom code to build whatever I need. And it's time intensive, it's costly. And every time I need a change, I'm going back to one of those three buckets to do it. There has to be a better way. Right. It's kind of like you think about email marketing back in the day when I started with email marketing, 
you actually would like hard code every email that you sent out, right? And now we have WYSIWYGs that allow you to design really cool things. Why can't we do that for everything else? And so to me, we need to move faster than traditional development allows. Now that doesn't mean that there's not still a reason for developers, which I can talk about in a second, but it means that like the use cases you have as a marketer don't need to be done that way. And that's where like this benefit of no code really comes in. I think the challenge is it sounds a little crazy. And what I mean by that is when you tell someone, okay, yes, you can build an enterprise grade application that is cheaper than any of the other options you've ever done. It's faster and you can do it. Like the first reaction you hear from people is like, that's like, what's the catch? Is that snake oil? Right? Like (laughs) that sounds crazy. And I'm, and I honest times when I tell people that I'm like, I know you think that that sounds crazy. Right. But I've been you and we are building a business to fix the problem that I know you have. And, you know, once they get in, especially using Limovate, like they see that. And that's where like the explosion of growth, I think, within what's possible with our platform and that customer starts to happen. But it is kind of crazy to think, what are you saying? Like something that used to take me six to nine months that used to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I can do in a couple hours like it, well, it can't, it clearly can't be as highly designed or as custom to what I need. I'm like, no, it actually can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is exciting to marketers and they always start, and this is what we've seen. They always start with like one use case. Well, let me like test it out, right. To make sure like it's not smoke and mirrors. And then they're like, Oh, that, that was, that was real fast. Like I, I can, I can do this. I'm like, I know. And that's where, you know, you start to see that acceleration, which is really cool. Now, you know, sometimes when people hear no code, one of the things that they think is, okay, so you're saying like, we don't need developers. And I'm like, no, I need developers, right? I need developers to build all of this functionality. We like to think of it as Legos in different shapes and sizes and colors that you can assemble together. I need developers to build those and expose all the properties so you can customize them to your heart's content. Um, but you don't need developers to do that. And I think it just really starts to flip, you know, what we have developers focus on. And if we have more developers focusing on things that are reusable, not just for one customer, but for hundreds of customers um, across just the world, that would be really, a really impactful thing to the, the really business today. I think the other part around no code is it's a democratization of tech as well. So even some of the platforms that exist today that are maybe like low code or no code, um, sometimes they're actually hard to use. Or you have to understand like kind of programming logic, but you don't have to write code, you kind of need to understand it or understand like data flows to really use it. And what I tell people is I want to be the place where everyone builds apps. If you can use the internet, why can't you build an enterprise grade app? And that's what we're, that's the goal and the mission that we have. And that to me is exciting. And I think it's also, you know, where the future of no code's headed. There's a huge gap between the number of developers that graduate with development degrees or go through development boot camps and the number of open positions just in the US alone. And so we've got to do something to fix that and still allow businesses to move at the speed that consumers demand. Great. Uh, and you have certain industries that you've 
you know, aggregated a number of clients, I think life, life sciences and healthcare. Are you seeing other industries kind of coming along more quickly than others and being more innovative with maybe the wayfinding apps or some of the other apps that they're developing with yeah. your platform? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, for us, we have customers across almost every industry, but I would tell you like the three that really seem to latch on to innovate and explode with their usage is consumer packaged goods, hmm. um, healthcare life sciences, and the manufacturing. And they, for very different reasons. And I think that's what's kind of interesting. You know, when you're on a horizontal platform and you can do everything, it's extremely great for long-term growth, but it also is really challenging because you can do literally anything. So let's take a look at Roche. Um, they're a customer of ours. We power their internal communications. So every employee at Roche has an app on their phone powered by Lumivate that gives them 100% personalized newsfeed. We also um, do these are platform for ABM campaign apps. They also are using our platform for their field service organization for employee productivity. And then let's flip to Delta Faucet, who uses us for their price book <laughs> with their dealers and distributors. Totally different use cases, um, sometimes even within the same company. And you mentioned wayfinding. So at IU Health with Riley Children's Hospital, we do navigate Riley. That's powered by our platform. They also use us for patient tracker, which tells you where your loved one is in surgery. Completely different use cases, different audiences sometimes. And I think it shows you the power of what's possible mm -hmm. with our platform. But I will tell you, you know, the, the companies that, and really the people within the companies that tend to grab on to Lumivate so quickly, because we are early, right? We're early in the no-code movement. We're early with this belief that marketers can build apps and that really anyone outside of IT can do it. And they can do it in an easy way for the enterprise. Are people who are used to pushing boundaries. They don't want to do things the way that everyone else used to do them. They don't believe that that worked. They don't have time to wait. We hear that a lot. You know, I always joke that if you ask a marketer when they need something, they always say yesterday. We're what makes yesterday happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why those industries tend to latch onto us the most. They also tend to engage with consumers the most. So if you think healthcare, life sciences, right? Everyone goes and sees a doctor. People go to hospitals every single day, consumer packaged goods. Chances are, right, you've probably been in Target in the month of March. Um, so there's lots of things that you're doing where you're interacting with those brands where they can create those engaging digital experiences and they need to do it fast and quickly. All right, sounds like the sky's the limit. Uh, one of the ways Lumivate has reached marketers is with your own 100 plus episode podcast, Real Marketers. Can you walk me through what led to the creation of that platform in 2018 and how it's been a tool for you and Lumivate to, to find customers? Yeah. So back in 2018, I get introduced to someone and her name is Rachel and she runs Share Your Genius, which back at the time was really helping B2B companies launch podcasts. I did not meet her in that context. I met her because someone thought um, we would hit it off as friends. Mm -hmm. And we started talking and it was like at the, talking about our kids, life. And at the end, I was like, oh, by the way, what do you do? <laughs> and she, told, she was like, well, I help companies launch B2B podcasts. And it was like, tell me more. Because like at the time, my understanding of podcasts was like true crime mm. podcasts, right? Back then, there wasn't a ton of B2B podcasts out there. And she started telling me about it. I was like, okay, we need to like schedule like a non like get to know you, but like a get to know you about your business conversation. So we did that. And 
I quickly was like, why not? Let's try it. Let's see what happens. And I remember working with her and she was helping us figure out our show flow, what our concept of our show should be about, who should be the host. And she's like, well, you should do it. And I was like, "Mm, I mean, should I? (laughs) She's like, no, you should. And I was like, I have no idea how to do it. She's like, it'll be fine. I'll teach you. And what's been cool about it from that moment on, and I would have had no idea how to launch a show without her and her team is we really put down like roots and I would say like stakes in the ground around what was important to us. So some people today use a podcast and they'll go after like their prospects. They create a list of accounts they want to go after and they try and get those people to speak on their podcast to create the sales opportunity. I was super adamant that I didn't want to do that. Um, and I didn't want to like generate leads from it. I didn't want to calculate the ROI of the podcast because it was a brand play to me. What I wanted to use it for was the ability to go, how can I align, align Limavate's brand with these other huge brands? Mm. Because there's an assumption when you say Limavate and the CMO of MGM resorts, people assume that you work together, even though we never say that, even though we never did it creates an assumption of the, and elevates your brand. And I think it's the really a great way to do that when you're young. And so that's where the show started. And I never would have guessed that we'd get to a hundred episodes. We'd be almost four years into it, but it's been a fun journey and it's been kind of cool because we do now take these breaks. Um, so we'll, cause now seasons are really popular in podcasts which weren't back when we first started. So we'll take a break and then we'll launch a new season. And I will get these messages on LinkedIn that people go, Oh my goodness. Like, is the show done? Like what's going on? Like, when are you coming back? And I'm like, like in a couple months, you have cliffhanger season it, finale, right? but no, like we're not like, it, there's not, it's not like the end of like a season where, you know, there's a big cliffhanger. And I usually say like, Oh, we'll be back with season three, you know, in a few months. They're like, but, but when, um, which has been kind of fun to see. And it's also yeah. been really cool for me personally, because I find I learn. So when you have guests on and you have the right type of guest, your host should be learning too. Those are the best conversations because when I'm engaged and I'm learning something new, I'm asking questions in a different way than if I'm just interviewing you. Because now I'm like wanting to pick at it and wanting to understand how I can do it. And if I, if my, if, our audience is similar leaders like myself, they likely have the same questions. So I think that's another benefit that no one talks about is that you get to learn a ton from your podcast as well. Well, just another example, of even being bold in, yeah. a, in a new format, you know, taking a step back just prior to joining Lumivate, you were with Project Lead the Way, a STEM nonprofit. You know, what has drawn you towards these organizations that are removing barriers in software development? We're seeing a theme. Yeah, there is a thing. I think part of it is because, you know, for me, I want everyone to know that anything is possible in their career. And I think it goes back to, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I didn't have, you know, there wasn't kind of like a path for me. I had to create it. And a lot of what I saw were people that had previously been in roles, right? So when I started out my career, you know, I thought my ultimate goal was to become a CMO. I didn't realize I could be a CEO because I didn't see a lot of other female CEOs out there and no one I knew was one. And so part of what I think my passion is, is around breaking down barriers around like what it looks like or what you have to look like on paper in order to have a certain type of career. 
And one of the things I loved about Project Lead the Way is I'm super passionate about education because I think education is the most critical thing for everything, is being able to work you know, closely with schools and see kids, you know, even my own children, learn how to do things they never thought they would do and to do that at an early age. I mean, there are kids today in elementary school that are built, that are writing code, which is completely crazy to think about that that's possible. And to me, that has been a really, was a really great portion of my career journey is being able to combine what I love, which is education, breaking down barriers also with what I think I'm good at, which is, you know, is digital marketing. So, yeah. So how are you carrying forward the theme of encouraging mentoring in your own organization with your own team? Yeah. So I think it's a couple things. Um, so one, I always tell the team, my schedule will always look like a hot mess. I know that I always will have lots of meetings on it, but the most important thing for me is all of you. So you can ask me any question. And as long as I legally can tell you the answer, I will. Um, because that's the benefit too of working in a smaller organization is you do get to learn more. You do get to have your hands in different areas and you should benefit from that. You should take advantage of it. I think the other thing as well is, you know, we invest in professional development for each of our team members and we work with them to figure out what that looks like. We also do educational sessions every other week on a variety of topics. Um, and then the other way I'm doing it, which is kind of related to the motivate, but also just like personally, and I probably will regret this at some point, but I don't say no to anyone that asked me to be their mentor. And at some point I know that will be too much. <laughs> But I have been blessed by some incredible mentors in my career, and I really believe in paying it forward. Mm -hmm. And so I want to do that, especially for other women, and especially for people who have non-traditional backgrounds, right? I think especially in tech, you know, I, we'll think about like an SDR role. Most tech companies, if they're going to go hire SDRs, they're going to go look at college grads that were athletes. And don't get me wrong, they do make fantastic SDRs. But you know who else also makes a fantastic SDR and AEs eventually teachers who want to get out teaching. Do you know why? Because they're really great at getting people's attention. They're great at, you know, organizing a classroom and kind of hurting a class, which is very similar, like in a sales process. Sometimes you got to get everyone aligned, everyone focused on the same thing. It'll work towards a goal. The other thing is car salesmen, um, mm -hmm. right? They're very used to being able to hustle and being told no a lot and, you know, dealing with people who aren't always the most pleasant, which oftentimes is the role like an SDR plays. So I also want to challenge the norms of what you need to look like on paper in order to get a certain type of role and instead hire for the, what type of personality traits do you need in order to do this role successfully? Maybe you've never done this exact thing I'm asking you to do, but you've done in the exact industry right? But you've done everything that shows me that you can do this role and you can be successful. And most importantly, you have the drive to do that. I can't teach drive. I can't teach being humble. I can't teach being amazing to work with. I can teach you how to do the job though. So I try and look for those types of things and don't exclude anyone because they don't look traditional on paper, what someone would expect for a role. You know, we'll finish things up with something that you said to me recently that really resonated in and it's that your career started to really take off once you stopped asking permission for everything. Yeah. Talk to me about that mentality pivot. Yeah. So I grew up in the Midwest. I'm a woman. So I grew up like, I'm to be super polite, not to, you know, speak out of turn too much. And that's how I was the first like six or seven years of my career. 
And I expected that like I would do great work and people would just notice it and good things would happen. Um, I was at a company and I had been there probably about a year and I had been talking about this problem in this one area for like six months. Like we had so many meetings about it. I had given so many suggestions and then we were sitting in yet another meeting about it because nothing had happened. And someone in the meeting like verbatim said exactly what I had been saying for like months. And everyone goes, that's a fantastic idea. And I was like, am I like, do people, do I not use words? Like I was very confused. And I went home and I was so angry and I was telling my husband, I was like venting to him about it. And he was, and I was just like, Ugh. and he was just like, well, why didn't you say that? Why didn't you come back? And I'm like, well, cause I, you don't, I don't do that. He's like, what if you did? And um, from that moment on, I decided I was done holding back. I was done asking for permission to do my job because oftentimes when you're younger in your career, you think you have to like get your boss's permission or someone else's permission to do the work. Well, can you check this over? I'm going to do this. What do you think? And why? <laughs> Chances are I probably know more. Um, because I'm in a day-to-day than the person managing my, me might be, why do I have to keep waiting? And so I decided to stop. I stopped asking for permission. I started doing my job. And when I saw problems, I just started, I would politely like point them out to the person that was over them. I would wait like patiently and wait for patience like maybe two days. And then I would just start doing it. And at first when I did it, I was like, oh, I'm gonna get, I was like kind of nervous. Like I'm gonna get in trouble. And then I realized I do great work. No one yells at you and tells you to knock it off when you do great work. Instead, you get more opportunities. And so from that moment on, I just stopped asking for permission to do my job or to do what I thought was best. And I started believing that I knew what was best. And that's why I was hired. And then we kind of grew from there. And I think that's a mentality that I've had. And it's why I've been successful is because I don't wait for someone to tell me I can do something. I wait for them to tell me to knock it off. And I haven't been told to knock it off yet. Well, thanks so much for your time with us today, Stephanie. And I really appreciate all your comments, your candor. And I think that you're making it so much easier for a lot of other people to be it because they're able to see it in you. Thank you so so much. Thank you so much for joining us on the circuit.